0: A talent to be able to play that thing and direct. Can you chew gum when you do that too? I'm not supposed to. Oh. You know, I realized as I was listening to that wonderful anthem, I understood every word they were singing. And, you know, we're so often quick to complain when the sound system's not working, and over the last two years we've been working to get it right and get it right. Mark, uh, that was tremendous, and I want to thank you for what you've done to make us be able to actually hear what's going on up here. That was great. A couple of other things that I think I ought to draw to your attention. Am I right in thinking that the, uh, um, the, the bulletin announcement, it should read Sunday, February 6th? Is that correct? Is it supposed to be Sunday or Monday? Because I heard it's Sunday. I heard him say Sunday was the uh, banquet. It is Sunday. It says Monday in the blurb. So uh, it, that's incorrect. Sunday is the di- date next, a week from today for the uh, Mexico dinner. Right? Okay. Also, uh, following uh, the second service, if you are parents of his kids' children, uh, we are going to be meeting uh, with you, our, the elders and I and others representing uh, the session will be meeting with you in the prayer chapel uh, to talk about the future of the ministry. As I indicated uh, at our Wednesday night uh, State of the Church address, Jeff and Vicky Richards have uh, submitted their resignation. They have a wonderful new opportunity uh, that they're going to be pursuing. And, uh, of course, it comes as a shock to all of us, and we'll be doing Moses together at kind of the last hurrah. Uh, but we, we did want to meet with parents of his kids because that's one of the many vital drama ministries that are going on to assure you of uh, our continued support of that ministry and figure out what, what is next. So if you're a part of that group, we'd invite you to come after second service, and we'll meet in the, in the prayer chapel. How many of you owned a horse as a kid? Oh, a lot of you. How many of you ever had that horse run away with you as a kid? <laughs> yes, every one of you that raised your hand the first time. We had a horse. It was an old range pony. Pony. His name was Monty. He was a, just a bag of bones. Uh, but he had the toughest mouth that God ever created in a horse. And he also had a lower lip that went like this. You ever, your horse ever, blah, blah, blah. we called him blah, 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 Monty. And um, <laughs> Monty was fine as long as... Uh, as you didn't kick him into anything faster than a trot as long as you trot along that was fine but if you wanted to, to, to canter and you kicked him into a canter he got mad and he would take the bit in that tough old range mouth of his bite down on it and he would head for the nearest fence and he would run as fast as those old bones would allow him to run he would get to about five feet away from the fence slam on all fours and try to throw you over his head onto the fence I cannot tell you how many times that horse tried to kill me Nor how many times the feelings were quite mutual. (laughs) There is something very frightening about a runaway horse and only those of you who have ever had that experience can imagine really the power of the imagery that we saw last week of runaway horses. For in the midst of this throne room and the vision of the Lamb that is unsealing these seven seals on the scroll, out of the mists of heaven appear these horses. And uh, they don't look anything like Monty looked, I don't believe. They are large and they are powerful and they are various colors. And each one is a, an, an example of runaway something. The white horse is runaway what? You remember? Runaway what? He's the one that's bent on conquest, remember? It's runaway power, it's tyranny. The red horse is an example of runaway what? Warfare, runaway violence. The black horse is runaway famine. In a world torn with warfare and tyranny, uh, the people suddenly discover their fields are burned and their stomachs are empty and both are black. And the final horse is the, is, is the pale horse. I have revisited that and I want to change my opinion. Uh, this very rarely happens, uh, so you might want to put this down in your journal. <laughs> I was reading over it again today, and I, I, last week I shared I thought that this was the, tra- the traditional understanding of the pale horse was pestilence. I don't think it's so. I think, I think it is death. I think it is death because you notice that it, is, it kind of recaps all of the earlier ones. It's famine, it's war. In addition, it adds in pestilence and even wild beasts. And I believe basically that the pale horse bats cleanup for the other three. He represents the the capturing, the the final stages of all that the other three are bringing on. And Hades is following close behind, sweeping up the remnants of lives that have been destroyed. One quarter of the world that is destroyed. So you have runaway power, runaway tyranny, runaway warfare and violence, runaway famine and and death that seems to be out of control. That is the image that we saw, the images that we saw last week. And it is frightening, pretty bleak. Well, the lamb is not yet done. There are some more seals yet to be unsealed that need to be broken. Let's turn this morning to the fifth and sixth of the seals. Look over John's shoulder and see what we might learn from these frightening and very vivid images. Beginning with verse 9. When the lamb opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. "'and the testimony they had maintained. "'And they called out in a loud voice, "'How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, "'until you judge the inhabitants of the earth "'and avenge our blood?' "'Then each of them was given a white robe, "'and they were told to wait a little longer "'until the number of their fellow servants and brothers "'who were to be killed, as they had been, was completed. "'I watched as he opened the sixth seal, "'and there was a great earthquake.' The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. What an image. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave, every free man, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, And they called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Wow. This is the word of the Lord. Or I might say, this is the word of the Lord. Yep. Let us pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts truly be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Take note of that last verse, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? We'll talk about that next week. We'll talk about that next week. Well, with the breaking of the fifth seal, another piece of furniture suddenly appears in the heavenly throne room. What is it? I'm not going any farther until you get this because the questions don't get any easier. They just get tougher. What's a new, a new piece of furniture? The altar appears in the throne room. Uh, and uh, we, will, we know that the altar is a place of sacrifice. If you come from a Roman Catholic tradition, when the Mass is performed, that's actually considered the re-sacrifice of Christ. And so it is rightly called, that that piece of furniture in the front of the Catholic Church is rightly called an altar because that's what occurs there. It is incorrectly called an altar in our tradition because we don't believe that occurs. We are celebrating a supper and so we call it the Lord's table. An altar is a place of sacrifice. When John was writing, his visitors would have understood well what he was talking about. They knew what an altar was because they had an altar in the temple. In fact, they had two altars in the temple. Did you know that? Outside of, you know, there were several walls and courtyards that led to finally the central part, which was the temple, and within that then was the Holy of Holies, which was separated from the inside of the building by this great thick curtain that might have been as much as eight inches thick. Outside the temple, all right, in the, priest, in the court of the priest, was the altar of burnt offering. It was there that the sacrifices took place the sacrifices for atonement the sacrifices uh, uh, where they killed the animals whether it be a uh, lamb or a bull or even doves if they, were, if they were not wealthy enough to afford those so that's where the burnt offering took place but there was another altar still and that was the altar that was on in, on the inside of the temple just outside of the curtain which separated the holy of holies from the rest of the sanctuary and that was the uh, altar anyone know? I heard it who said it? Who said it? I heard it. Incense, that's right. Your tithe can be 8% next year. (laughs) Now, I don't know if that's a drop or a raise for you. but (laughs) We don't know exactly which altar John has here. And remember, the nature of apocalyptic imagery is that's not the point. In fact, we, as we discover through the next few chapters, they are kind of folded together because now we seem to be looking at one that seems to be the burnt offering uh, altar and in a few uh, moments, in a few weeks, we'll be looking at the, uh, the incense which represents the, the prayers of the people of God. So we have this new image, this new uh, furniture piece that appears and it is an altar. Now what is the unusual thing about the action that is taking place in and around and near this altar? What's unusual about it? Where is the action taking place? Underneath the altar. Now it is on top of the altar ordinarily that it would occur. The animal would be slain, placed upon there, and burnt in offering to God. But but rather here in this image, it is under the table. How many of you, uh, if you're my generation, we went through these nuclear uh, bomb uh, drills. Remember them? As if this was going to make any difference. <laughs> you know, a nuclear bomb drops. Hide under your desk, and everything's going to be fine. Okay, right. <laughs> But that's what we did. We're hiding under the desk and protecting ourselves in the event of a, that, that the Cold War really went south on us. Uh, here we find all of the activity in this image is taking place under the table, under the altar. Now, why is that? John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. What is the calamity that is being spoken of here? First rider was tyranny. Second rider was violence, warfare, third rider black black horse was famine, fourth rider was death, fifth, now what is the fifth calamity we're looking at here yes, religious persecution religious persecution, we're looking at martyrdom here we're we're hearing the voices of the the martyrs, that's what's being spoken of Uh, but why under the table, any idea why are the martyrs speaking to him from out, from under the table that's exactly right. It is where the blood ran. In Leviticus 4, in fact, we were told specifically that when you slay a bull, you shall throw his blood at the base of the table. And in the old city, there were intricate um, drainage systems that would allow what amounted to thousands and thousands of gallons of blood from these sacrificial animals that were offered on a daily basis to be drained away from the temple area and outside of the city. So the blood, which was the... and, and you know that blood, that's symbolic in scriptures, that's the life force... Jesus sacrificed only moments ago we were talking about a lamb of god whose blood was slain and that's why he is victorious because he has shed his blood for us now we find the the they are under the table because it is the blood of the martyrs that is the seed of the church and the blood of the martyrs cries out for vengeance to god that's what the other eerie piece of this is he not only sees the souls but and i don't know how he does that but he hears them and they are crying out with a single voice a loud voice and this is their cry it is the cry of every soul that has ever ever been snatched away by tyrants The, the cry of every soul that has ever endured the temporary victory of evil over good how long how long they cry how long sovereign lord until you judge those who have wronged us how long until you avenge our spilled blood they cry to him the greek word for sovereign lord here is interesting it's one word Now those of you who come from a more liturgical background, you will remember or recognize that the ordinary word that is used for Lord in Greek is kurios, kurios, and so we have the Kyrie in a mass, kurios, that's what's the word that is normally used, but this is a different word, it is despotes, despotes, from which we get the English word despot, despot. Now, when we think of despot, we think of someone who's a cruel, tyrant, an unjust, mean, heartless ruler. But in the Greek, it meant absolute sovereignty, complete power. And so the blood of the martyrs is crying out, saying, how long God, you who are the absolute ruler of all, will you allow these petty and temporary despots to tyrannize your faithful followers? Isn't that good? It is the question that is as old as humanity. God, why do you allow these awful, evil, godless people to flourish, while we, your beloved, faithful followers, are brutalized. It was a question that was repeatedly raised in the Psalms, particularly by David in Psalm 109 and others. He said, Lord, I'm a good guy. I love you. I obey you. And these other people are flourishing. When are you going to bring some bad luck on them? Jeremiah actually has a point where he says, could I talk to you about your justice for a moment, O Lord? That's a great opening line. Mind if we talk about your justice, Lord? Because I don't like it. It is the cry that each of us has offered at one time or another when we look at some sleaze bag that uh, we, we, we can't imagine how God would be willing to, to bless them. And yet, in spite of their dishonesty and the treacherous way they treat people, they seem to flourish. So the cry goes up from the martyrs and it's the cry of the human heart. God, when will you make things right? When will you make these scumbags pay for the way they treat us and really for the way they treat you because we have died for your sake. The response is very interesting and not very satisfying. Do you agree? It's very interesting and not very satisfying. Perhaps we expect God to immediately vindicate the lives of the precious souls who have died for his sake but that's not his answer, is it? Instead, we see that they are wrapped in what? White robes. Are you seeing that theme repeat itself again and again? The preciousness of God, the protection of God, the perfect righteousness of God. White robes. You see, white robes, ordinarily, that's, that's what that represents. Although the guy on the white horse was a bad guy last week. Uh, they are wrapped in this white garment, and they are told to what? Wait. Oh, we love that answer, don't we? Of all the answers God can give us, it's the one that we love least. He says, wait, why? Because the number yet to be killed is not complete. So what does this mean? God has a list of, I mean, he's got like a million and 327 martyrs that must die, and then, I don't think that's what it means. I think it's the wrong way to understand it. I believe what we must understand this text to mean simply is this. God is saying, not yet. I know that you are anxious for me to avenge you, but Not yet. I know that you're, you long for me to avenge the, those who have tyrannized you, but I long to see those who don't yet know me come to me. And so I am going to delay what I know you want me to do. And there, if, if there's ever a common heartbeat uh, concern that, that we all share, that is it. God's saying, I am not going to yet do what you want me to do because I have something more planned. But he doesn't leave them entirely desolate, does he? What he says here, now let me just wrap you up. Let me me wrap you up in the garments, my white robe, the the garments of my righteousness and my love and my security and my protection. Let me wrap you into my love and you just wait because the time will come and it is just not now. Any of you there? Any of you need to be wrapped into God's love because his time to answer it has not yet come. But the sixth seal does begin, at least, to partially answer their cry. You notice that? Up until now, the calamity of the end times has been primarily the doing of human beings. Tyranny, warfare, warfare warfare-induced famine, and the death that results from all the activities of these evil people. But with the sixth seal, who gets into the act? Nature. Nature itself. Nature itself begins to fall apart at the seams. Horrendous earthquakes that cause mountains and and islands to disappear. It sounds incredible, doesn't it? it? I used to live in the midst of earthquake country. I lived in Bakersfield. I will never forget one time. I was on the 12th tee at Kern River Golf Course. I was looking out across, and suddenly the earthquake hit. And I looked out across this long stretch of land in front of me, and I actually saw... The land doing this. Have you ever... Some of you have seen that? It looked like a roller coaster. Up and down. Up and down. It was undulating. It was unbelievable. I thought, wow, I got a cool seat for this. The funny... The funny uh, parent, parenthetical uh, comment is this. There was a guy that was on the green. Now, get this. he's No trees, no buildings. Uh, you're in the middle of nowhere. And this thing hits, and he starts screaming. Aah! I thought, well, now there's a man who could keep his cool in crisis. <laughs> I mean, he's about as safe as he can possibly be, short of the earth, swallowing up, and he's screaming on the green. I'd love... Yeah, he missed his part, I was just going to say. <laughs> that might have been it. <laughs> <laughs> that might exactly be it. Now I understand. <laughs> I would have screamed (laughs) too. But that was nothing. The San Francisco earthquake in the early twentieth century was nothing. The entire geography of the world will be changed when these earthquakes hit. Mountains will disappear. Islands will drop out of the below the water. The sky will turn black. Some of you have experienced that. How many of you were in the path of Mount St. Helens when? it blew. My mom was in Yakima at the time. She says, I thought it was Sunday. She said, I thought the end of the world had come. They walked out of church, and it's black outside in the middle of the day. It says that huge asteroids, they don't know what to call them, so they call them stars. But he sees the image of it. Huge asteroids will fall out of the heavens and hit the earth, and we know the devastation that can be wrought by that, for it's happened to us in, in, uh, in Arizona, in Central America in the past. Nature in absolute bedlam. And I want you to notice the result of this. For suddenly it is not just the martyrs whose voices are crying out. Do you see that? Now suddenly it is the kings of the earth and the princes and the generals and the rich and the mighty, as well as every other slave and free person. Everyone, in in other words. But rich and powerful as well. And they are mentioned first. Suddenly they are also crying out. But unlike the faithful, they cry out not to God, but to whom? To whom are they crying? The mountains, the rocks themselves, they are begging for suicide, begging to have the mountains fall on them, because that would be better than to face the wrath of the one who sits on the throne, and the wrath of the Lamb. And finally you think, aha, finally they're getting it. Finally it appears, the God whom they have denied, whose followers they have oppressed, whose witnesses they have killed, whose creation they have abused, whose children they have exploited. Finally, that God has become real to them, but real in a fearsome way for God who has been patient, God who has held back his hand of wrath, who has postponed his judgment in the hopes that others might turn to him. He has had enough. He's had enough. One of the themes that ties the fifth and the sixth seal together is the cry of the people. Do you see that? In the fifth seal, it is the cry of the martyrs asking for vengeance from God. In the sixth seal, it is the cry of the people who are fearful of being destroyed by the wrath of God. And so they beg the mountains to fall upon them. And it seems to me that one of the questions that this vivid and disturbing text poses to us is what will be the cry of your heart when we experience runaway calamity in our lives? What is the cry of your heart when we experience runaway calamity in our lives? And do not be mistaken, you will experience runaway calamity at one time or another. Some of my older friends, is this true? At some point, it will hit you, young people, middle-aged people who have lived a charmed life. At some point, a tyrant of a boss will fire you for no good reason. At some point, the blood-red hand of violence will lay hold of you as it did a woman who is related to our church and who discovered two weeks ago through phone call that her brother had been murdered. Perhaps it will be the black runaway horse of famine and poverty that trumps upon your life. Or perhaps a season of sickness and death. Maybe it will even be persecution for your Christian faith. But your season will come. I'm just telling you, I'm warning you right now. So when you are run over by calamity, over you what will your default response be what will be the cry of your heart like the foolish people in the sixth seal do you intend to rail at the circumstances will you rage at the stock market and rage at the x-ray machine and rage at the corporation that has downsized you out of a job it is as fruitless as crying out to mountains and rocks they are deaf they will not hear your voice will come Echoing back to you that shaking voice of frustration. Or will you cry out to God? Honestly, tell Him how you're feeling. Genuinely share your anger with Him for not getting on with this. Sharing your hopes and your pains and your anger and what is occurring. But then allowing Him to wrap you in the cloak of His love. As He tells you, just wait a while, my child, my daughter, my son. Just wait a moment. All things will be made right. But for the moment, rest in my peace. Let me do my job. What is the cry of your heart? What is the natural response to calamity? You know what it is. You might pray for God to change it if it needs changing. There's another question that I think this text poses, probably more troubling. It's the simple question of this. If we were called upon to give our lives for Jesus Christ, what would our response be? Do you ever wonder? When you hear these stories, do you ever wonder, how would I do under those circumstances? When you hear of soldiers who have been tortured and and martyrs who have died, do you ever wonder how you would stand up under similar circumstances? Do you ever wonder if you were faced with the choice of denying Jesus Christ or dying, what you would do? We hear about these people who were willing to face the sword and the axe and the flame, rather than deny Christ, and we are inspired, but frankly, we are also intimidated. Because we say, would I he able to pay the ultimate price for the Savior who paid the ultimate price for me? And a tougher question for me is not myself, but would I be willing to allow my wife to pay that price, my children to pay that price, as has been called upon in centuries past. Those of you who join me this summer on my Reformation tour, our last stop will be lovely St. Andrews, Scotland, where I lived for two years. It is a glorious place, and there is more Reformation history packed into that little square mile than any other town I've ever seen. And I will take you outside of the, the, the bell tower of St. Salvador's Chapel, and we will look down below and we will see the initials PH in, this, in, this, in the cobblestones. And that marks the site where, in 1523, Patrick Hamilton became the first martyr of the Scottish Reformation as he was burned to death there before the church doors. We will walk on down a little farther past the site where Henry Forrest also was burned to death. We will come to the site outside of the castle where Cardinal David Beaton stood. And he laughed as he looked out upon George Wishart, who had been arrested for his Protestant convictions. And he too was strung up out there, hung, burned, and they put a keg of gunpowder around his neck for good measure. And then I'll take you around to where I used to live. And in the courtyard right outside of the garden where I used to walk and play croquet, I'll show you an X that marks the spot where a Lutheran octogenarian pastor named Walter Milne was also burned, this time outside of the doors of the cathedral. These are a bit a sampling of the kinds of experiences that have been shared by human human beings down through the centuries who have given their devotion to Jesus Christ, often in the face of tyranny and at the risk of death. Now when we hear such things, we are prone to say, well my goodness, that's fine, but that was 500 years ago. This is modern times, we are enlightened society today, certainly we don't have people who are dying for their Christian convictions today. Really. I corresponded with Harold Kurtz. How many remember Harold? He came and preached for us, he was a uh, A missionary in Ethiopia and other places and he came and shared with us many years ago he's the, the director of Presbyterian Frontier Fellowship Harold sent me this email when I asked him about modern day Christian martyrs he said there are literally thousands of Christian martyrs in the South Sudan every year, did you hear that? more people than who make up the city of Gig Harbor are killed every year in the South Sudan alone There are more, listen to this, more martyrs there than in any country in the world, perpetrated by the fundamentalist Muslim government of the North. These murders are primarily for political reasons, but there's a definite ethnic and religious cleansing going on. They feel that if they can wipe out the Christian population, or at least break its back, they can control everything. A few years ago, David Dobler, who's a wonderful evangelical leader in our denomination, and when he was the moderator of our General Assembly, he told about flying into an airstrip near a village where Presbyterians had gone with the gospel almost 100 years ago. He was going there to take our condolences as a denomination for what had happened to them recently. A short time before, the congregation was at worship in their church, which was built out of brick wall and a grass roof. And as they worshiped, they were attacked. The roof was set on fire, and as the congregation rushed out, machine guns raked them, killing many of the congregation. As Dave and the others were walking from the airstrip with the pastor who met them, local people carrying grass and poles kept joining them. David asked what they were planning to do with that. The pastor replied that they were going to rebuild the church. He was astonished and said, are you going to rebuild the church after all that has happened to you? the pastor said, yes. We're going to make the fields of death into the fields of life. And the startling news, Harold goes on to write, is that in all of this, the church is exploding. His daughter reports, hearing them say over and over again, Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is our only hope in life and in death. And around the assurance of God's love and the presence of Jesus, amazing growth is taking place in that area of the world. The Presbyterian church alone they estimate to be nearing one million people. We may never have the privilege of dying for Jesus Christ, but if we do not, it is not because we were not given fair warning. What did Jesus say to those who would follow him? Do you remember? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now we've turned that cross into a, a problem. You know, I've got a great aunt who is my cross to bear, or I have this carbuncle that is my cross to bear. That was not what Jesus was talking about. What was the cross? It was a, a method of execution. Basically, Jesus said, if you would follow me, are you ready to die for me? Because that may be what you're called to do. And indeed, many in that first generation of Christians were called to do that. If you would follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross every day, and follow me. That is the price to be paid. It is a price that we are not called to pay here. But that is what we are warned by our Savior might be the price. What good, he says, is it, a man, is it for a man who will gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? We may never have the privilege of dying for our faith in Jesus Christ. But we do have the privilege of living for it. Remember what the apostle said, Paul said in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you therefore, brethren by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So we have two choices. If we die for the faith in Christ, great. If we don't, we still are a living sacrifice given over wholly to the service, to the worship, to our devotion to Jesus Christ. So this morning as the cry of the martyrs echoes in our ears... This morning, as we're reminded of the blessing of freedom that we have, while other Christians around this world, even this moment perhaps, are dying for their faith in Jesus Christ, this morning I ask you are you prepared to give your life for Jesus? And maybe more to the point for this time and place, are you prepared to live your life for Jesus Christ? Let us pray. Lord God it is almost impossible to know how to deal with these kinds of questions because until we are there we don't know I obviously pray that I would be a person who would have the strength of my convictions and that my church would be filled of similar people but we don't know and we do know this it is only by your strengthening that we have the ability either to die for you or to live for you in either case we pray O Holy Spirit that our voices might join those as the voices who cry out to God not rail against the world who find our hope in the eternal God who is the loving despot and not in the circumstances that pummel us. May we live for you until the day we are called to die for you. For we ask these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us stand as we sing together our doxology. God, we are reminded again that all that we have and all that we are is yours. Help us to give freely, joyfully, glad to be in your service. For we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.